Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to the start of probably what will be a fairly busy week here at Disney at Work and Play. We have upcoming the reopening of the People Mover. We're going to talk about the People Mover and its sisters. Yes, there's more than one sister to the People Mover. We'll talk about that and, um, and actually experience the People Mover this week. And then... Uh, we have big announcements coming for the new Disney Wish uh, with the cruise line. So we're very excited about that. But, but at the end of the week, Disneyland will finally reopen, having been closed since March of last year. And because of the excitement of that new reopening, we felt like it would be a great time to kick off this week by talking about the magic of Disneyland's best land, Fantasyland. With its reopening, it's just a great time to remember what makes this flagship park so special, even more than just the fact that that Walt Disney had originally created, which was huge and a big issue. It just has had a special touch and a special focus for so many years. So in this pod, post and podcast, we're going to look at the artistry and magic of Disneyland's Fantasyland. From art to sculpture to landscaping to characters themselves, we journey to find amazing craftsmanship. Along the way, we find what truly makes this the most magical of all the lands at Disneyland. Through narrative, photos, and video, we invite you to not only listen to this podcast, but check out our Disney at Play, because we have dozens of photos and a special video that we've created that captures the magic of this happy place. I've actually divided up this podcast. And by the way, make sure you also subscribe to um, Disney at Play, Disney at Work again, because we've got all these podcasts coming this week and you won't want to miss uh, anything. I've divided this this topic, this subject, into different categories and I started it with portraits. Now, what I mean by portraits is that the Disney dark rides, and when people say, what's your favorite Disney dark ride? I don't usually think of something like Haunted Mansion or um, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, maybe Buzz Lightyear, um, definitely Roger Rabbit's Toontown Spin, but but the the thing that most um, emphasizes the dark rides at Disney are the Fantasyland rides. There's still one. There's still two of them at um, the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, but there are several at Disneyland, and they are truly um, unique um, attractions, um, largely because of their heavy use of black light, which is um, their approach to um, showcasing these attractions. That's kind of why we refer to them as dark rides, because they, f they play most heavily on the black, the use of black light. Um, but at the beginning of all of these, well, not all, I'll talk about the exception in a minute. The beginning of all these dark rides is what I refer to as kind of a character portrait, 
where you see all the characters of the of the show of the film all kind of in this um, montage piece that kind of showcases what the ride is all about. Um, Pinocchio, Snow White, uh, Mr. Toad and Peter Pan all have these portrait features. The one dark ride in Fantasyland that does not have it is Alice in Wonderland. But Alice in Wonderland is a departure from any kind of dark ride because it's not just an indoor attraction, it's also an outdoor attraction. And because of its just, and it's also a two-story attraction. It goes up a floor and then comes down a floor. And because of its uniqueness, I've actually rated it as one of my top 10 Disney attractions across the world. It's just truly a very unique dark ride. We'll, we'll cover that experience on another day. But I want to talk about these portraits. Uh, start with Pinocchio's. Pinocchio's was added, that dark ride was added in 1984. And it's stayed pretty much the same way. I think there's some talk about doing some updates to it. But this character portrait has always been the same. Again, all of this is at DisneyAtPlay.com. You see Pinocchio, and he's heading towards school, but he's intrigued by by Gideon and Falfellow and the coachman who are on the other side, and with Jiminy Cricket um, toward the school side, beckoning him to to don't pay attention to those, can continue on. But it's the portrait that you see as you get ready to board the attraction. Um, what happened is, I, I think because there wasn't a lot of theming originally at Disneyland, there, uh, there was these kind of this troubadour tent look, which is similar to the facade you see at It's a Small World on the outside of It's a Small World. And so to, to kind of convey uh, what this attraction is all about, other than the signage itself saying um, Mr. Toad or Snow White or Peter Pan, they, they created these portraits. And I've actually shown the original portrait and the current portrait. Now, the Snow White one was probably one of the best portraits because it includes the huntsman, includes the prince, the, the wicked queen, and then also the old hag as well as, of course, Seven Dwarfs and the Animal Friends. They're all kind of together. Snow White's in the center, oblivious to um, to the demons behind her. Um, but it, it's very much in that spirit. That original um, poster, or mural, that original mural, my apologies, has gone away. In lieu of that, they put a cottage toward the entrance of it. So it made you look like you were going into the Seven Dwarfs Cottage. And then at the exit, they put the mural in without um, uh, the villains. And, but they put the mural in at the very end as you disembark to kind of give you a sense of a happily ever after, uh, which is how it's conveyed. Now, Snow White is actually being redone currently. Well, not being redone. It is opening this week as um, Snow White's uh, Enchanted Wish, I believe is the title of it. And so I don't know what the mural will look like, if it's the same or they'll have something different, but, but this is part of its legacy. Peter Pan, and the, and the photo I have isn't a great one, but Peter Pan's mural showcased the same thing. It showcased he and Wendy and John and Michael, but even Nana, all the Lost Boys, the Indians, 
the pirates, Captain Hooks, me, all of these individuals. Think, of course, all these were assembled in its original mural. Nowadays, when you board that attraction, you just see Peter, Tank, Wendy, John, and Michael, and the teddy bear. Does the teddy bear have a, have a name? I can't remember if the teddy bear has a name. But they're positioned on a cloud, kind of overlooking um, London as you board the attraction. Um, Mr. Toad also had a great mural um, that had him seated, standing on top of Cyrus. I believe that was the name of the horse. Um, as well as all of his friends, but also a constable and um, the weasels and all of the villains that are encompassed and signage on both sides saying this way, that way, or Worcestershire, no, you know, um, just it, it, it conveys the we're merrily on the way to nowhere in particular. The newest mural is the most beautiful because it's more of a tapestry type mural and how it's done. And, um, and it also conveys scenes from the show, even the idea of him falling into hell at the end. Um, and, it's, and it's done as part of a tapestry that would be in his manor uh, where he lives. So it was very, it's a very cleverly, very colorful, very um, beautiful mural done. So anyway, I love these murals. You have to check it out on DisneyAplay.com. But um, I also wanted to note Again, these things all just contribute to the magic of Fantasyland. When they redid Fantasyland in 1984, they decided to create architectural facades that related to um, the characters. So you get sort of a British, um, you get a British clock tower and kind of um, um, roof line, skyline that would be reminiscent of something you'd see in London. The same with Mr. Toad adjacent, which is a little bit more um, brick as opposed to wood and in um, Peter Pan's. It, and you get sort of a castle type facade. It's Snow White. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that later. And then in front of Pinocchio's, you had kind of an Italian kind of cottage scene. Well, What's interesting about all of this architectural change is that when they created it, they also created special weather vanes for these attractions. So if you look up at Peter Pan's flight, you'll see the crocodile um, as one of the weather vanes or um, on top of a, a, a tier there. At Mr. Toad's, you will see a north, south, east, west type um, um, weather vane, but he also is shown riding his automobile and, um, and joyfully on his ride to nowhere in particular. And then over at Pinocchio's, and this is, this is kind of a cool one. There's the, there's a whale, like a monster of the whale on top of a weather vane, but a few feet away, you have a different kind of weather vane with a school of fish. And so, and the whale is pointed um, the whale is pointed toward the fish. So it's a really quite humorous because it, it almost recreates the scene um, of the whale uh, chasing the fish before he swallows Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket. So just it's a, these are just little touches that just delight you when you are in the attraction. The next theme I wanted to talk about is sculpture. And it be the piece I begin with is right before the Sleeping Beauty 
um, diorama that you visit, walkthrough diorama that you visit, there is a beautiful sculpture. It's not a big one. It could fit on your t you know dining room table beautifully, but it's of Aurora and Prince Philip, and then the three fairies kind of gathered around, and uh, and they are dancing, and it's it again provides kind of a uh, an icon to point you in the direction of the Sleeping Beauty walkthrough attraction, and it and it f folds beautifully with the Sleeping Beauty castle. Uh, which is a sculpture in and of itself, by the way. I should I should mention that. But but um, when you come around to the other side of the castle, one of the very cool things they have is Snow White's Grotto. And included in this is Snow White, some animal friends, and the Seven Dwarfs, with Dopey usually out of sight when you try to light up the camera because he's kind of down below fishing at the pond. Um, these... There is kind of more legend than truth around these characters um, that arrived mysteriously, supposedly, from Italy. They had been um, crafted in Europe and then shipped out to um, California. Um, some people um, uh, have different stories about what how these figures came to be. I think it was part of a um, promotional type thing that actually uh, the Disney brothers had had um, or those licensing Disney products had had implored them to do. But at any rate, the results of these sculptures eventually made their way back to California. And now they're on display and they have been for decades just um, to the right of Sleeping Beauty Castle as you face it. And it's in a grotto with a, some waterfalls and a mine train entrance. And um, and then adjacent to it is a wishing well. And the, and the wishing well consistently plays um, I'm wishing throughout the day. And you're invited to make a, a, to toss your coins into the fountain, into the well, and to make a wish. And which is a big, I've, you know, I've heard families that for years and years, every time they come to Disneyland, they stop and the last thing they do on their way out of Disneyland is make a wish at the wishing well. The sculptures are not perfectly um, in terms of size. Snow White comes across as very small. She was done almost at the same scale of the dwarfs. And so that makes her look petite compared to the dwarfs. So to fix this and address this, John Hench put Snow White way at the top of this rock formation for the grotto to kind of give, again, a sense of um, Snow White being more in the distance and still being correctly proportionate to the dwarfs, which are further down below and closer to you. So at any rate, lots of story about, but whether or not you, you know the right story or we have the wrong story or whatever, what everybody loves is this little corner. And I love it when I can find and I have often found Snow White just greeting guests there. By the way, this grotto is also um, represented. It's never been done at Magic Kingdom. It has been represented at Tokyo Disney and also at uh, Hong Kong Disneyland. In Hong Kong Disneyland, it almost looks identical. In fact, I almost thought about taking footage 
from Hong Kong Disneyland and putting it into the video that we present in this podcast because I wondered if you'd even see the difference. Other than the growth of vegetation, it's 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 almost identical. Conversely, the one in Tokyo is not on the right as you face the castle, but on the left, and it becomes kind of the um, kind of the point where you're kind of moving from fantasy land over to the entrance of frontier land, and it's kind of out in the open. It's kind of presented very openly, as opposed to being kind of this this grotto you discover along a winding path. But notwithstanding, it's very cold. What Tokyo does, however, is they create Easter eggs representing all the dwarfs at, at Easter time. And that's, that's very cool. But anyway, um, statues are found throughout uh, Fantasyland. For instance, at the entrance of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and also, by the way, in the interior queue, you see a picture of Miss, or you see a sculpture of Mr. Toad. Again, where else can you find formal sculptures of a frog? than at Disneyland. Um, some, uh, probably the best of the best are, this, are the carousel horses that appear at King Arthur's carousel. These are beautifully sculpted um, horses. And I say sculpted because they're not sculpted out of, out of rock. They are sculpted out of wood. And then they are lacquered several times over and painted and lacquered several times over to create the final finish that most people ride. But the fact that the... And and by the way, there are 72 horses on the carousel, but you actually... I think the number is more like not, um, 80 or 85 actual horses. What they do is they have either fiberglass models or just simply extra horses that they have taken, that they have, that they can replace. So the intent is that you don't take the whole carousel down for refurbishment unless you have to do the actual um, roof, which was actually done recently. But rather, um, you can take a few horses at a time and replace them with fiberglass versions of horses or, or just kind of keep the stock going and never have empty horses sitting on the carousel, which is a very cool thing. But the, the artwork and the attention to detail on these horses and the fact that this, which is the oldest attraction at Disneyland, has been preserved for well over 100 years is a tribute to, to the craftsmanship, again, in the park. And with all the lighting of the carousel and the, and the details put on the and the carousel wheel itself. This is a stunningly beautiful attraction. When you get a chance, take a look closely at the horses and stand so you look at the outside of the horse and then take a look at the backside of the horse facing the inside of the wheel of the carousel. One of the things you don't know is that the way carousel horses were created hundred years ago is they put all the attention to detail on the outside where the guests would see, but only minimal detail on the inside. And while it's all beautifully painted and very consistent in its finish, you actually see that the original craftsmanship is lesser detailed on the inside than it is on the outside. It's just a little, little thing about carousel horses from that period. You see the same thing when you um, do the carousel at Magic Kingdom. Um, 
Now, I've talked about sculptures in varying um, places in Fantasyland. Let me talk about a couple of really uh, big sculptures. Monstro the Whale at Storybook Land is a, is a sculpture of plaster and cement, and it's got teeth, so to speak, to it. But it is, it is such a whimsical thing to arrive at a certain point. It's kind of out of theme, really, if you think about it. But it's totally somehow acceptable to arrive at this place and, oh my goodness, I remember as a child being fascinated that I could just step forward and see this this big whale. Is it real? <gasps> the eyes moved. You know, I, I could, you know, I could swear it was real as a little tiny child. Um, but, but sure enough, um, it is the result of some really wonderful craftsmanship. And uh, you... I just appreciate the detail going through and who would know that you'd go into a whale and come out the back end. <laughs> but, uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is the mighty Matterhorn Mountain. This, you know, we have major rock features that are provided in our parks. Um, Galaxy's Edge, um, the uh, Batu. Uh, that is, you know, two of them created, one for Disneyland and one for uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. This is a massive undertaking to do something like this. But add others that have been done for Pandora and for, um, for uh, Cadillac Canyon in Cars Land. And then mountains such as Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain. Disney is an expert at sculpting mountains. It is amazing. But the first one is the mighty Matterhorn Mountain. And that is a pretty amazing thing. The, the sculpture that went into this back in 1959, the level of detail that just nothing quite like that had ever been created. And it's one thing to create, a, create your own mountain. It's another thing to try to imitate. Um, a citadel, you know, you know whether or not it just, it's either going to look or not look like the Matterhorn. Of course, um, the original Matterhorn had um, and still has has a lot of holes or crevices into it for the bobsleds to run through it. I used to have a major set of holes um, where the Skyway went through. Uh, I think some dignitary asked once uh, Walt uh, asked somebody uh, why there's so many holes in the Matterhorn. Well. It's because it's Swiss. It's made out of cheese. <laughs> it's something, you know, the holes of Swiss cheese. At any rate, um, maybe I didn't tell that joke so well, but notwithstanding, the matter that the big holes have been filled in for the Skyway many years ago, but it still is a mighty Matterhorn. And by the way, a smaller sculpture attuned to this is when they did the makeover back in the late 70s, or I mean, uh, yeah, the late 70s. They added... Uh, a Yeti or a, a abominable snowman is what they usually referred to it back then. And, uh, and to give you that sense of adventure that you're going to run into the abominable snowman, they actually had a sculpture done of his foot that they found. Um, and it's on display as you're in the queue line gathering in. It's just a little detail, but these little details all add up to the magic of Fantasyland. Well, gardening is also an amazing part of the 
Disneyland experience. And nowhere do you see be- more beautiful topiaries, uh, more original style topiaries than you do in Fantasyland at Disneyland. From the entrance, and they're like bookmarks, uh, bookends, to the Fantasyland experience from the castle all the way to It's a Small World toward the toward the rear of Fantasyland. You see these topiaries in the front. There are sets of swans and other minor topiaries or ornamental topiaries that are done. These topiaries are a little different than the ones you see in the Flower and Garden Festival. The flower, they both have metal bar type um, uh, structures, skeletal structures that, that have created for it. But these topiaries that I'm referring to were were created by growing a plant for a very long time and then keeping it sculpted. In uh, in um, the Epcot of uh, festival that's held annually, most of the topiaries there are done with a lot of use of moss, which has got to keep kept wet and fresh and live, so to speak. But it's a different style of topiary. And mind you, the artwork and the art form of those topiaries for Flower and Garden Festival is amazing in and of themselves. But you would be remiss if you didn't really have an appreciation of the effort and the long suffering that goes into the kind of topiaries you see in It's a Small World which all represent different animal shapes, an elephant, um, a lion, a giraffe. All of these animal shapes form the exterior garden before you enter into It's a Small World. You board on the outside of the attraction and you go around these gardens as you enter into the build, into the show building. These things were lovingly grown over time and not not an easy thing to pull off, but they are truly truly amazing. But there are other gardens growing in very different ways throughout Fantasyland. For instance, outside the Mad Hatter shop in the center of the Fantasyland area is a small plot of permanently planted carrots uh, for the White Rabbit. Um, The carrots through Disney magic look like they're always ripe and ready for picking, but the plants that emanate from this is just another little thing that gardeners take care of to create the total story and the magic of the experience there in Fantasyland. Meanwhile, around the corner, when you head over to the Matterhorn bobsleds, you find these mountain flowers and alpine grasses and tall pine trees, all of them grown um, in fact, if the pine trees, they try to keep them at a smaller scale as you go up the mountain so that it doesn't ruin um, the, the entire scale of the mountain. You, it's a, remember, the Matterhorn is a 100, 1-100 scale replica of its alpine namesake. And, uh, and so the trick is, is putting trees up in the mountain in this basically what is a 500 ton structural steel you know mountain piece and all of these all these pieces just you don't even think about what you're seeing there and yet it all seamlessly 
comes together as you go through um, this experience of fantasy. Now, there's no better tribute to all things um, floral and beautiful than Storybook Land Canal Boats. Originally, this attraction was a mess when it opened up. There was nothing really to see. But at the dock, you know there's something special because at the dock, across the way, you see this um, for better uh, intense... Uh, it's, it's an elegant hedge. And it spells out storybook land, and it's against this floral backdrop, and it welcomes you into that attraction. Once you pass through Monstro, you come into it. One of the key pieces that stretch throughout this attraction is a quilt of vegetation. And you have to see the images uh, on Disney at play to understand this. But if you've never seen this or if you've never been on the attraction, you definitely, if you ever go out to Disneyland, you've never been there, you have to go on Storybook Land or Casey Jr. Here in this image I have, you have Casey Jr. going through the background and you see this quilt of vegetation. It's inspired by a silly symphony film that goes back uh, almost 100 years. And it suggests this kind of, it's uh, the Silly Symphony was Lullaby Land and this child goes through this imaginary wonderland world and it's all, all of the hills and valleys are made of, a, of, the, of these bed quilts and that's what's imitated here as you go through. But then you get into the individual um, dioramas and scenes. I have one of uh, the old mill and it's kind of a Dutch... Um, scene with lots of little Dutch mills and all the little, you know, how there you get tulips and little flowers lined up along the Dutch mills in Holland and so forth. And that, I'm telling you, um, what, and I'm reading from uh, what was Walt Disney's Disneyland. It was a, the coffee table book that you purchased uh, decades ago when you visited Disneyland, and I believe it was written by Marty Sklar, it says, quote, the most difficult task was to locate live trees that would not grow anymore for the force surrounding the home of the seven dwarfs. The answer to the problem seemed to be the Japanese bonsai tree. However, these tiny trees require constant care. Poor trees were very expensive and good specimens were almost unobtainable. Near Mendocino uh, in Northern California, the landscapers literally unearthed a much more perfect solution. Pine trees truly dwarfed in every respect were growing three to 12 feet in height in a quote unquote pygmy forest, just 50 feet from the same specimens towering 60 to 80 feet tall. The dwarf trees had rooted in a limestone shelf. Their growth rate is so slow, it is nearly impossible to measure. A dozen of these trees now grow in storybook land in soil closely matching the nearly sterile conditions of that limestone shelf. Since planting at Disneyland in 1956, these trees have only grown about one inch per year. I mean, the thinking and detail in, in the landscaping is just... You could do a whole tour of gardening just in Fantasyland at Disneyland. And then you add Bill Evans' Adventureland tribute and the Mickey floral portrait out front. There's, I mean, there, 
no one park has more beautiful floral tributes than Disneyland. And it's especially true in Fantasyland. Now, while we're here in Storybook Land, it would be, we would be remiss if we didn't go to our next topic, which is miniatures. And you have to understand that Disney, much of what made Disney animation work is that in the process, as they created different characters, they would craft maquettes or small models or miniatures of the characters and different scenes that they were doing. So the Seven Dwarfs um, Cottage, for instance. So you would get the right look and feel and animators would draw it correctly. They would sculpt and craft. And there was a sculpture shop and, and craftsmen who were just really great at building smaller versions at, at, a, at, a, at a percentage scale of what they... Um, of what they uh, uh, would be in real life. And I want to go back to this Disneyland book um, and, and read about the scale aspect. From the biggest to the smallest in Disneyland is a journey of just a few steps to Storybook Land. Here, European canal boats and the Casey Jr. train whisk you away into a kingdom within a kingdom where the delicate touch of the model maker and the landscaper's inventiveness combined to portray settings in miniature from Disney animated motion pictures. Model makers at the Disney studio labored six months turning artist visualization of Pinocchio's village, the straw brick, the straw strick, the straw, this is hard to say, the straw stick brick homes of the three little pigs and other fabled favorites into detailed buildings. On a scale of one inch to one foot, they made lead hinges so that the six-inch doors that would actually open would actually open for electricians to change out the light bulbs. They carved dozens of tiny toys for the window of Geppetto's shop. They installed minute drain pipes and handcrafted stained glass and leaded windows. Um, I'll just stop there and say there's a, a great story that's told of, of uh, artists saying, you know, we don't have to make this out of stained glass. I guess they're not going to notice from the boat the difference between that and maybe a, a plasticized version, a resin version. And Walt said, oh, I will notice. So <laughs> that's, that was Walt's philosophy. Then it goes on to say, then the landscapers moved in Oh, we've kind of read about that. But actually, I don't think I've read uh, this portion. The landscapers moved in, matching the miniature dwellings by ingenious use of plants and flowers. First, they selected plants whose leaf size was but one quarter to one half inch. Then they restricted root growth by planting in containers. They met special design problems by pruning and shaping a three foot tall Japanese boxwood with gnarled trunk to represent the oak tree where Alice entered the rabbit hole. They also uprooted a hundred-year-old grapevine, turned it upside down, and made it appear like the terribly tortured old snag in front of Ratty's home in the Wind of the Willows. And then it goes on to talk about the story I've already read about Snow White. You, you get the idea of what's going on here. The attention to detail is just f so amazing. And nowhere is it more amazing than Storybook Land, but it's not the only place. Head over to Pixie Hollow. This space 
is outside the castle, uh, just off of the hub. It's the space that occupies between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. And this space, well, it's actually where the Tomorrowland home of the future was um, originally. But when they tore that down with the remodeling of Tomorrowland in 1966, it sat kind of empty. Actually, it had a circular gift shop um, and some fountains around it. But then Imagineers just took that space and made it even more precious by creating a home for Tinkerbell. And, um, and it, as part of it is, are, these little, um, are these little cottages that the fairies live in. And they are all part of Pixie Hollow. Um, then you have small dioramas which share the story of Sleeping Beauty as you go through the castle. Those two are done in small scale, as is, um, you know, you have the windows on Main Street that show different dioramas from stories. Well, they've taken some of those older ones, these older designs, because they have some very um, elaborate ones at Disneyland on Main Street. But some of the old-fashioned ones that <laughs> look more almost like dolls, you can find those in the windows in Fantasyland. And then there is even a small replica of Rapunzel's tower. Now, at Magic Kingdom, you have what looks like a kind of a scale version of a tower, it kind of sticking up. Here, they've created a little maypole kind of thing in the center of Fantasy Fair that is a small replica of Rapunzel, but you can see her and her hair wrapped around the tower. And it's, it's just, again, loving detail. That may be a little bit more statue than miniature, but, but Disney does miniature just beautiful and it also does character one of the distinct features that is different about disneyland from the magic kingdom is that the disney characters very few of them have a quote-unquote home you go visit mickey does in toontown and i just mentioned tinkerbell's space um but really most of them are just out and about. They live their lives in Fantasyland, going from place to place, and it's really quite enjoyable. I have this great image of Gaston. We walked off of Mr. Toad, and he was there posing, and he and interacting with our children, and it was just a, an hilarious scene. On another occasion, I turned the corner over at Fantasy Fair, and you know, there you go. There's Bert, and Mary Poppins taking a stroll in Fantasy, uh, in Fantasy Fair and, and available for photos. And you just, you come upon them. They're like little gifts. They're like treasures, gifts that you come upon. Um, I should also mention that last week they previewed this new, um, or piloted this new kind of experience with Tinkerbell, where you see Tinkerbell inside a small lantern and you could see her physically moving and talking to you while a projection of it is made in a mirror um, that's, that's been created or crafted with a little bit of Disney magic. So you, you have this meet and greet that is virtual, but with a real, uh, with a life-size tink, meaning, you know, only a few inches tall, as well as a, a, a fuller scale image that you can more easily talk to. It's a very clever thing. I suppose they're going to put it uh, there in the um, Pixie Hollow area. I think there's some issues with lighting, so maybe they need to enclose that space a little bit more to make that work. 
but that would make that experience really, really great. Now, in terms of characters, there's also other characters who show up in different ways. Um, one of the great shows out there, there are two great shows in Fantasyland. One of them is what's known as Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, and they do this comedy improv show in the Fantasy Fair's Royal Theater during the day of both Tangled and Beauty and the Beast. Now, I'm sure when the parks reopen, this is not going to be available for a while. But when the park goes full scale again, you'll probably find this show, and it's quite humorous. Usually, um, um, Belle or Rapunzel will show up for um, the experience, but they share the story in a very funny, very humorous way, and it's a lot of fun. Meanwhile, there is a show in the Fantasyland Theater that called Mickey and the Magical Map. And let me tell you, few, few stage shows have, have warmed my heart more than this one. This one just, just takes it to another level. There is this scene where Pocahontas appears and then Mulan and then Rapunzel um, and they sing uh, uh, in, a, in a round with each other. There is another scene um, that goes Hawaiian with Stitch. There's another, there's a finale scene with Princess Tiana. Oh my goodness, every scene in the show and the, and the dancers are truly, truly amazing. I wouldn't mind seeing a Mickey and the Magical Map show kind of take the place of Beauty and the Beast and to create a, I mean, you could kind of build on Disney animation, which is what this show does with paintbrushes and things of that nature. And I think that that would be appropriate to, to that theater and to the setting of Disney's Hollywood studios. But anyway, we'll have to see what becomes of that show. If it, I wouldn't be unhappy if it just came back the way it was, but if they put in something like Mickey and the Magical Map into the Magic Kingdom, that would be very cool. The final theme, we've gone through what? Sculptures and, uh, and uh, portraits and uh, weather vanes even and floor, uh, uh, gardens and miniatures. The last theme I wanted to talk about was just simply pixie dust magic. Those little places where Imagineers have created little fun, cute things. And they begin at Fantasyland Fair before you get very far into the heart of Fantasyland. Um, there's a couple of things that are just really cute. Figaro is perched up on a ledge and she's got her eye, when she's not sleeping, on a little bird that kind of in a cage that kind of um, uh, gives a Cleo kind of a playful attention. And so anytime you're passing through there, and by the way, you see it as you pass through from, from Fantasyland over to Frontierland through Fantasyland Fair, um, keep an eye on the cat and the bird. Nearby is this like old-fashioned crank machine, and you crank it and it plays um, topsy-turvy from Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the scene comes to life with Quasimodo and, and everyone in the crowd in town in front of um, Notre Dame. It's just a cute little scene and very interactive. Further into Fantasyland, probably one of the biggest things 
is keep an eye on the tower above Snow White's Enchanted Witch. I assume this is going to still be in play when the attraction reemerges. They want it to be friendlier, but still, it's always been so cool to have the curtains part. And there is the Wicked Queen. I would, I would be disappointed if they changed that out because it's so cool. And you want to keep your eye on the curtains. And down below, they've had this apple. Touch the apple and you hear the witches crackle. And uh, it's in front of the little story, the golden storybook that opens up as you enter. Not sure if these elements stay or go, but they were great parts of the magic. Over at Pixie Hollow, the time to be there is at night. Because these little fountains, a little bit, during the day, they're like fountains that shoot off um, at Journey to Imagination. They kind of come to and from. But here they come to life and they they bubble up the water so that they kind of just have this great aesthetic to them it's so it is so cool and then um and i had to end on this one there is this tradition in the popcorn wagons at disneyland of having a little character um cranking the machine and in one of them at fantasyland is a is a clown um but the one that's my favorite, probably my favorite out of all of them, although the Davy Crockett style one is kind of cool and the Rastronaut one is kind of cool in Tomorrowland. But my favorite is this small, tiny Yeti that is constantly cranking to make the popcorn. Again, little touches, but everything speaks in a great Disney experience. And boy, everything is speaking when you when you visit Fantasyland at Disneyland. So I am excited. Now, I, I the good news is, is that as of now, the state of California has opened it up for out-of-state folks to come to California and to visit theme parks. And to that end, SeaWorld down in San Diego has, re, uh, has opened up and allowed guests from out of state to attend if they show vaccination. That has not been announced at Disneyland yet. I'd like to think, now they've they've shown calendars, they've allowed Californians to book both May and June. And what I see in the calendar, I was a little surprised because people, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, my friend Talia had waited 18 hours to get a booking um, and so I felt like the demand for booking was pretty high, but when the dust cleared, there's still a lot of day. There were still several days in May you could visit both parks, and a lot of days in June, and um, and most days at Disney California Adventure. And so I was a little surprised to see them as much availability. Again, they've done away with the Disney Pass holder program and pass holders are used to going in at a discounted amount not at a full scale amount like those of us who live um outside the state who once who come once a year or, or so and um and so i'm surprised the attend so i wouldn't be surprised if at least i would think probably as may comes in they're going to open up the july bookings, see what they look like i would say at least by by um, the 1st of June, they should be opening up bookings, assuming COVID rates continue to go down, which they have done amazingly well in California. I would assume that that 
will open up for out-of-staters at the end. So it's an exciting time to potentially be going back to uh, Disneyland. And I will tell you, if there's one place to spend time in, I know that I will be uh, spending a good quality of time in the heart of Fantasyland. Well, that concludes our Disney at Play podcast. Remember, we've got some great podcasts up ahead this week. Be sure to um, be sure to uh, subscribe to our podcast so that you get notice when it's coming. Also, make sure you subscribe to J Jeff Cobra K O B E R at YouTube because our videos come out there. And we've had several um, in celebration of Disneyland's reopening. I did one the other day of the Grand Canyon and Primeval World, world, and uh, and and I also did one called The Magic of Fantasyland at Disneyland. So check those out if you haven't already and make sure you subscribe to those. Better yet, get on to our Patreon site, the Wayfinder Society, where we have interactive apps that celebrate the magic of Disney everywhere. And in particular, uh, we talk about best in business practices at Disneyland. So if you like to hear those kinds of experiences, how Disney creates the magic, and how you can apply it back to your own organization, definitely subscribe to the Wayfinder Society. You'll see our links at Disney at Play and, and all our posts. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for being part of the magic. In the words of Sinbad, storybook footage, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon.